going from being just a normal able-bodied person to being a disabled person in a wheelchair yeah there's, there's a lot of baggage that comes with that and so that, you know you're navigating quite a lot there and I think in, in some ways actually the business and, and, and working at GoCardless was almost like a respite to that right it was an area where I felt like I could be myself Hello and welcome to Secret Leaders. Today's guest is the CEO and founder of the payments giant Go Cardless. Its global payments network and tech platform take the pain out of getting paid for more than 50,000 businesses worldwide from multinationals to SMBs. They process over $15 billion of payments across more than 30 countries with offices in the UK, France, Australia, Germany and the USA. They've raised over $123 million across a variety of rounds and when they started in 2011, Hiroki's co-founders were Matt Robinson, who runs a successful property tech startup Nested, and Tom Bloomfield, who recently stepped down as a CEO of the challenger bank giant Monzo. You could say that GoCardless's founders are the UK's version of the PayPal mafia, so maybe one day they'll be sending rockets into space as well. Hiroki has been on a real journey of growth, both mentally and physically over the last few years with Go Cardless, having to physically rebuild his body and outlook after a shocking cycling accident in 2016, which changed how Hiroki managed his day to day. So without further ado, it's time to welcome today's secret leader, Hiroki. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, before we get started, we'd like to just do some quick fire questions. So on that basis, are you ready to answer them? Yeah, go for it. Uh, right. Cats or dogs? Cats. Netflix and chill or read and write? Netflix and chill. PayPal or Stripe? Stripe. Apple or Google? Apple. You have to spend the next three years of your life at either Oxford or McKinsey. Which one are you going to choose? Oxford. And you're stuck on a deserted island for the next five years. What three things are you going to bring? Oh, my iPhone, coffee, (laughs) and a fishing rod. Interesting you choose coffee. I mean, you get to lie in in this, in this island, mate. Yeah, but I, I mean, I've tried to give up caffeine before and it's very painful, so yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, you've got your priorities set out for you. Right, Oxford, McKinsey, maths. It all sounds a lot like someone with an upbringing focused heavily on excellence and education. So when growing up, first question I've got to ask is what were your parents like? Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, they were they were supportive, but challenging, I guess. Uh, my dad is Japanese. Uh, my mum's English. Uh, so, you know, I grew up with, uh, I guess, a, a fairly mixed upbringing uh, in terms of cultures. Um, and, you know, I think that my dad in particular was always very, very focused on you know, the academic side of things. You know, it's a, they place a big emphasis on that in Japan. They're, yeah, they, they kind of challenged me. Um, but, you know, they, they were quite supportive at the same time. Was your mum equally as strict as your dad? She was a bit more empathetic, I think. <laughs> so, you know, my mum, uh, I think, also understood the value of uh, being more rounded as an individual, uh, whereas my dad probably would have just had me locked up studying maths all day uh, if, if, if he'd had his way. So I think it was a good balance. Fair enough. And did you spend a lot of time going to Japan? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, one of the things that my parents did that I really... Uh, appreciate um, is that from an early age, from about seven years old, they they used to send me uh, most summers to to Japan. Um, and and the first time I went, it was actually on my own. It was was when I was about seven years old, and I kind of fly over to Japan, spend the summer 
with my uh, dad's family, um, you know, playing with my cousins, uh, actually going to Japanese schools for a bit, you know, taking a bit of time out of the, the school term in the UK. And that, that, that was really invaluable for me, you know, both, I think, from the perspective of seeing two very, very different cultures uh, and feeling feeling them, right? Not just sort of visiting them on holiday, but, you know, living and breathing them. Uh, and then also, you know, giving me a sense of independence, right? You know, going and flying halfway across the world on your own when you're seven feels like quite a scary thing. Uh, but, you know, it, it, made, it taught me uh, that you can do a lot on your own. Okay, so you went to Oxford, followed by McKinsey, followed by doing a startup. Now, that seems to be quite a you know, British common ground for a lot of successful people in entrepreneurship. But, you know, at the moment, that management consultant, highly educated mold is starting to receive a bit of backlash as we start to champion more and more diversity and experience and the privilege of education and and opportunity. So how have your perspectives around that changed as someone who went through the system? And have you had some thoughts about, um, you know, I guess your cohort then and what the cohort like starting startups now sort of looks like? Yeah, I mean, it's. I definitely feel very lucky to have had the the opportunities that I've had, um, and you know, I think one of the things that really strikes me that's changing over the course of the last ten years um, is the level of awareness of of you know what's possible and this whole world of of technology startups that when we started Go Cardless didn't really exist in in Europe or in London, but was actually very thriving in the US, right? And in particular in California. And you know, I was really lucky to be able to go and intern with a with a, com- a startup uh, back in 2007 uh, when I was at university and seeing, you know, what a startup in, in Silicon Valley that was actually going through Y Combinator at the time, which was, and this was kind of the early days of even YC, right? Um, and so, you know, when I compare what it was like there uh, to what it was like over here, it's very, very different, right? You know, when we start decided to to start something most of our friends just thought we were unemployed and you know, couldn't be able to get a job so there was a very different perspective um and hopefully as that changes uh and there's more awareness uh over in Europe about you know what is possible to start in your bedroom then then it will welcome uh, and encourage people from more a wider sort of set of you know backgrounds to to actually get involved right so you know i think uh Hopefully, this is something that will change. I guess even down to like the ecosystem, you know, you've got stuff like Stripe's Atlas product and you've got product hunt sharing, you know, new easy ways to start up all the time. So it's just consistently bringing the bar down so much that anyone can really start. Yeah, but I actually think it's more, I mean, those things, are, those are all great, right? But I think it's actually more the the, the awareness of, of, you know, what's possible because, it, you know, starting a company, you know, actually like going to company's house and like registering, that that's not the hard part of, of starting a company right and, and that's actually relatively easy it's more just that understanding of okay well this is actually possible to do this right it's actually possible to start something uh with in our case very little experience uh and you know in your bedroom with no money uh and, and build something and, and i think that that's the most powerful piece so tell us about your original insight for go cardless why did you want to build it how did you meet your co-founders and uh really what were those first two years like I always think of it as like a journey of discovery, right? Because it wasn't like we woke up one day, you know, as 23, 24 year olds and said, hey, like, you know, all this direct debit and payment infrastructure is broken. Uh, let's go and fix that. Uh, we didn't know anything about payments. Um, so, you know, it was it was much more uh, a sort of a, 
a winding path to where we got to. When we first started out, uh, Matt and myself were both working together at McKinsey. They'd become really good friends there. And, and we decided that we wanted to, to start a business. But we actually didn't know what business we wanted to start, right? We, we kind of, we just knew we wanted to start something. Um, and that's and, actually the hardest part is when you can start anything and say, so you're like, oh God, but what do we choose? Well, yeah. So we, we, we spent, uh, we, we actually quit our jobs um, and we we spent a few months just playing around with lots of different ideas. And, and at the same time, I was teaching myself how to code because, uh, you know, I, 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 had never really coded before and uh, we we sort of felt that it was really important that if you're going to start a technology company uh that's focused on software then then you should be able to like write at least a, a basic version yourself and and that it was during that time that we reconnected with tom tom was someone that i'd known at university a bit we we were playing around with lots of different ideas and ended up settling on uh actually a slightly different idea to what we're working on today it was it, it was still around payments but it was focused more on you know, informal groups that were trying to collect payments. So, you know, you're, you're part of a student society, you're... Yeah, like a, a five-a-side or whatever. Yeah, exactly, right? And it was like, these were the sort of, the kind of the mundane pains that we'd had personally, right? Where it was like, oh, well, collecting payments is really awkward. You know, you, when someone doesn't pay you, it's, you have to go chase them and you have these awkward conversations. Uh, and it was all just really manual and messy. And so we thought, oh, well, maybe there's something we can do there. And, and that was the, the original idea that we started with. And... You know, as we were going through that, you know, we we were learning about how payments worked. We were trying to get access to payment systems and the rails ourselves. Um, and we were also going through Y Combinator. The whole YC experience was, was quite unique because, you know, you're, you're building up towards this uh, demo day at the end of the program where, you're, you know, you're meant to you know, present your, your business to this room full of, you know, these kind of um, uh, amazing investors that they're kind of the, the top investors in the world, right? And and everyone's basically trying to present effectively the same thing, right? Which is this hockey stick growth curve. And and we built this sort of initial version of a group payments product on top of PayPal. And so, you know, we, we just to kind of get things going, right? Um, because obviously building a uh, your own payment rails uh, is not a, it's not something that you can just do overnight. And so we were, we actually had a product, it was working, we had, you know, customers using it, but we weren't growing very fast, right? That was the problem, right? Um, you know, everyone's like trying to get that hockey stick growth curve and ours looked more like a logarithm curve. And, and how long do you have? Is, is it three or six months? Uh, yeah, it's about, it's about three months, just under three months, I think. Not, not much time to get product and hockey stick all at the same time. Yeah, well, I mean, look, like, you know, it doesn't matter what the time frame is. I remember in our batch, uh, we had uh, the guys at Code Academy, right? And they launched, they literally launched their product, I think it was like six days before demo day. And it would, and their like curve was just like off the charts. Uh, so, you know, uh, it doesn't take long to to get a hockey stick. Like sustaining a hockey stick is another another question, but, you know, you, you want that hockey stick growth curve and... Um, and so we, you know, we were sort of soul searching halfway through that program, trying to figure out, you know, well, why is it not growing that much? And you know, we, we, we end up coming up to the realization that the idea that we were working on wasn't the right one uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, but, but the thing that was super frustrating about it was that we'd actually made really good progress on more the building side of things, right? So we, we kind of had done all the hard work of trying to get access to these payment rails trying to get regulatory approvals, all these kind of things to build something that we didn't really believe in anymore, right? And so, you know, that combined with demo day just around the corner, 
you're just like okay what are we going to do and um and and i think that what, what we ended up coming to the realization of was that you know at the time uh all of the payments that were happening online were really just credit and debit card uh payments right but very much focused on e-commerce and you know th- those rails were never going to work for what we were trying to build uh for for a variety of reasons and and we were looking for alternative ways of collecting payment and we we'd come across this direct debit system that was perfect for what we were trying to do uh, but was even like harder to get access to even clunkier than all the credit and debit card rails like you know you couldn't you basically couldn't do it online right and so we sort of took a bit of a punt and we we thought okay well you know if if we've had this much trouble trying to get access to this stuff and not use it then you know maybe others are also having this challenge and and that was really the, the sort of the genesis of the thing right so we 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 ended up just pivoting to what we're doing today broadly, which was in building technology that makes those rails really easy to use. Uh, and we at the time we didn't actually really know who the customer was going to be, right? We just thought, okay, well, someone's probably got this problem. Uh, let's see what happens. And and then uh, you know we we got lucky, I guess, because we um, we got introduced to uh, a guy named Dwayne, who was the, the the founder of a company called Cashflow. Uh, which was this like online accounting platform that was that was quite big at the time. Um, they had sort of like twenty five thousand small businesses using it, right? Which you know, from our perspective, was like ginormous. We got introduced to him, and he just so happened to be looking for exactly what we were building, right? And he quite quickly came to the conclusion that no one, nothing else that existed, was really fit for what he was looking to build. And so he took a punt on us, right? He was like, look, even though you haven't even built the product yet, I'm going to use you guys. Uh, and so he, you know, he really believed in in both the idea that we were focused on, and and also us as uh, individuals, I guess. And we got really lucky in that sense. So we we ended up building the first version with Dwayne, sort of integrating uh, on his side, and and that that we launched sort of through the, his platform effectively. Uh, and then it just started growing, right? And it was like we we just had all these different types of businesses using us. You know, initially businesses that we could have never have sort of. Uh, guests were going to need to use us, right? I think the first payment we ever processed was for a skip hire company, right? It was like, you know, we never thought about that. And then it just sort of went from there. And, you know, for the first uh, two, three years, it was really just sort of almost like playing catch up with all the different types of businesses and all the different use cases that people were trying to use us for and, uh, you know, keep up with the growth. We were just growing incredibly fast without really doing any sales or marketing. And, uh, and, and that, that was really the start. Hockey stick? Uh, definitely more of a hockey stick, yeah. Yeah, finally. <laughs> yeah, finally, exactly. So uh, who were your first investors then? What did, that, what did that journey look like? How much did you raise in the first two years? Who from? Was it easy? Was it hard? Well, so we, we went into demo day and we still actually didn't have a product, right? So you know, we didn't have any kind of hockey stick to present. Uh, it was still an idea. And, you know, I, I remember when we were going through that, uh, Paul Graham, who was the, one of the founders of YC, uh, he, 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 he was, his saying was like, look, what you want to present is a hockey stick, but if you can't present a hockey stick, then the next best thing is to, to just present a, a dream. Right. So that was kind of what we were pitching. And, and so it was quite tough. Uh, you know, the, the first round of investment that we raised, definitely the hardest. Um, you know, I remember, I think we had something like 64 no's before we got our first yes. Um, and you know, we were, we were really just, uh, trying to get anyone and everyone to, to sort of believe in what we were building. But, you know, we were also at the same time going through the process of launching the product, right? And, 
you know, as we launched the product and as it, as it started to become clear that, you know, people actually really wanted what we were building, uh, we managed to kind of raise investment. Um, and in the end, we had, we had a fantastic uh, outcome. So we, you know, we raised from Axel, uh, from Passion, and then a, a whole host of really great angels um, who continue to support us to this day. I think the first round was like, I think it was like one and a half million dollars. So it was actually a lot more than we thought we wanted to raise initially, uh, which was which was kind of weird because and with a baseball bat, not even a hockey stick. Uh, yeah, exactly. And it was uh, it was uh, it, it was definitely like a, a a hard a hard path to get there. So the first sort of two months or so of the fundraise was was awful. But then as it started to pick up momentum, it, it kind of changed changed uh, changed its tune a little bit. And take us through like the the next rounds. Just I guess you know to, before we jump back into the story, just whilst we're on it, like your fundraising history then, um, and I guess where you can reflect on ease or complexity. You know, I guess like every time you've got more numbers, in some respect it's easier, in another respect there's more more evidence and more competition, and so sometimes it can feel harder. So you did your one and a half on a big dream and some big dream uh, investors understanding that belief. Um, but I guess as part of that, you've also got the story of this is how long it's going to last us. This is what we're going to accomplish in that time. And very few people ever match those two things up. So did you? And what was your next round, if you can remember that much, uh, that, that far back? And then subsequently after? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've raised quite a few rounds uh, of investment. Um, and, you know, definitely each kind of round has been different in a way. Um I think that you know that actually the, the the next round that we had was was quite easy because it got preempted by by the guys at Excel. Um, so you know we our Series A we did uh, without really doing a full process, which was great because you know we didn't need to go and you know uh, spend lots of time fundraising. And then also our, even our Series B was uh, relatively straightforward because we built some great relationships with investors uh, in London. And, 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 you know, at the time, you know, I think that the thing to, to keep in mind is that it, it, it was quite early in the ecosystem, right? So there wasn't that as many investors as there are today, but there also wasn't as much competition for investment. And so, you know, we, we'd actually been able to build some great relationships from early on. And, you know, we, we ended up uh, bringing on board Balderton, who we'd, we'd gotten to know quite well over the, the preceding years. And so, you know, that, that almost like felt like a, kind of a continuation of a relationship as opposed to, you know, a, a, a really formal fundraise. And I, I think the, the first sort of like tough fundraise after that was our, our Series C where, you know, we, we ended up raising from Notion, but we were kind of in this awkward in-between phase where, you know, we, we had enough traction and, you know, uh, numbers to, to really be able to look at them, but we hadn't really cracked the code of, you know, how to grow the business or, you know, where the next phase of the business was going to go. And and so we were kind of in this sort of awkward adolescent stage where, you know, we um, we didn't really have the right numbers and the right kind of understanding of our numbers at the time. And so yeah, that, that was definitely a, a, quite a tough raise. Um, but, you know, we, we found the, the guys, that's the notion that really believed in us. And, you know, uh, I think that, you know, that's, that's worked out really well. And, um but then, and then, and then, like the more re- recent raises, it's it's actually been quite different because it's much more about the performance of the business. There's a lot more you can go on, and, and there's a lot better understanding of what, how it works. And and so, you know, our most recent raise uh, that, that we did last year, 
Uh, we raised uh, about $75 million uh, from you know, the guys at Salesforce and Google and, uh, and Adam Street. And, uh, and that, that was a very different raise. It was, it was, quite, a lot, it was kind of quite intense because we spoke to a lot of people. Uh, but we did it very quickly. Um, and so yeah, there's a, a, a sort of quite a different sort of experience to, to some, some of those earlier, earlier fundraisers we did when we were still finding our feet. And how do you sort of find yourself like mentally preparing for those different fundraisers? Do you, do you get nervous? Do you find it all very comfortable nowadays? I mean, it's always nervous, right? When you're, when you're going out and sort of uh, bearing all your, the bones of your business and you know, seeing what everyone thinks of it, right? So you know, there's, an, there's a kind of an element of, okay, well, does everyone believe in this business as much as I do, right? Um, and so, so, so there is always some nerves, but, but you also kind of, especially as you go through the multiple rounds of investment, you, you, you get more accustomed to it, I think, and, and you realise that, you know, this kind of part of your job as the CEO is to, to make sure you've got enough money in the bank and the fundraising becomes a little bit more of a, a routine, right? That you, you, you sort of, even if each round is slightly different, you, you start to get a feel for. So, you know, uh, definitely something that I feel over, over the years has, has become a bit easier in some ways, at least at a personal level. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Right. So usually when you build a startup, like obviously the major major battle that one faces in general is self-doubt, challenging your mental well-being and, and your fortitude. So the resilience to build, create, lead, inspire others along the fundraise, putting out the fires at the same time. 
are those experiences that you've had as well or have you got too much of the uh you know japanese businessman culture in you to access those emotional parts of your uh, of your brain i mean it's like a roller coaster right um and so you know the, the highs are very high and the lows are incredibly low um and I think that it's not so much that that changes. I think it's more that over time, as a as a founder, you get more used to them, right? And 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 it's almost you become a bit desensitized to it. So, you know, I think in in the early days, you know, it almost felt like once a week or even once every other day, you know, you were having a a sort of a crisis moment. And this is you know a big part of the reason why you know starting a business with co-founders is so important, right? Because I don't think that we would have got to where we are today or even through the first year or two without having those kind of uh, having each other to, to lean on and, and almost having that commitment to each other to pull through but then as you go through you still go through lots of crises and you still go through lots of amazing wins but you almost become a little bit more desensitized to it and you, you, I think you, you it's a, almost a, a necessary thing right because you can't sustain that kind of emotional up and down in in perpetuity right um and so you know i think that now nowadays you know i I feel like i'm emotionally at least a a lot better equipped to to handle those yeah i i I do get worried i talk to my wife about it i get worried that i'm just becoming apathetic because you (laughs) you realize (laughs) you realize that something really stressful happened and you just don't care and you're like wow that's probably not healthy i definitely used to panic about that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah it's true it's true uh but i think it's uh i think it, if you if you think of it as like productive apathy then uh, maybe i don't know what you mean so talk to me about your your co-founders you just mentioned them obviously they're quite well known for starting up other companies um what was the journey like with them with them leaving how do those conversations go because um you know i rely so much on my co-founder and of course, like you can't help but get used to that experience of having someone else in your corner and just battling the self-doubt and everything that comes with it. And then obviously going from three down to one, that's a real process uh, that you'd have had to go through. I'm really interested in how you handled that. I'm sure a lot of listeners that will have been through or sadly might have to face going through the same things as well, definitely take a lot of insights from this experience. It's, we, we started out very young, right? So, you know, we were 23, 24. Uh, we didn't really know what we were doing. Um, and so we didn't really know what it took to, to start a business and, and what was really involved. And, and I think that, you know, the story of, you know, Tom and Matt leaving, they're quite different stories, right? Um, but I think both at their crux kind of come down to the fact that we didn't really know what we were doing going into this journey, right? And and so with Tom, it was, it was a little bit of a kind of a realisation on his part, I think, that he he realised that, and, and as we all both realised uh, that we were kind of going into building more of a B2B sort of software business and what that really meant, I think he kind of realised that that's actually not the business that excited him, right? That wasn't the that wasn't the type of business that, he, that gave him energy. And, you know, he, when we started getting into like, okay, well, how do you, you know, build out sales teams and you know all of this kind of stuff. You know, he Tom's a really loves product, really loves technology, really loves more the consumer side of things. I think is is what he realised, and so he he just wasn't getting the energy that he needed from from the business. And, and you know, I think that that kind of point of founder market founder product fit is is a really important one, right? Because you know, at the end of the day, if you're not super passionate about what you're doing, then, you know, it's really hard to battle through those emotional ups and downs. Um, and so 
so I think that he kind of came to that realization, and you know, it was, it was very amicable, right? You know, when 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 he realized that we we had a conversation about it, Matt, Tom, and myself, and we sort of realized that the the best thing for everyone was for him to go and find his his next uh, adventure, and you know, he's he's gone and you know had fantastic success after it um, with with Monzo, uh, which I think is a you know as a business is much better suited to to what gives him energy. Did you have any conversations about, you know, was there any sort of trying to convince him or was it very much a, well, I hear you and it doesn't sound like there's the opportunity to do so? Was it was it a discussion or was it a thank you for your thoughts? No, it wasn't really a discussion because, I mean, it was like, you know, when someone tells you, okay, well, this isn't the business that I'm passionate about, right? Then you can't really be the founder of a business and, and be involved in the business uh, without that passion because it's just so fundamental and, and you can't like, persuade someone to be passionate about something that they're not right so it was a very very natural thing where you know we, we, that there wasn't there wasn't much in the way there, there wasn't much in the way of debate about it it was more of a, a realization and and then a uh, an acceptance and without getting too technical like how did you how did you figure out how to disentangle him from the business so from an equity and a vesting point of view did you have to read a lot did you go get uh did your investors help how did you manage that process amicably yeah, well, I mean, I think that one of the things that was great about going through something like YC was that there's a lot of the, the kind of more technical aspects of how do you start up a company that you don't really realise going into to, um, and that you don't really have any kind of experience of. And, and they just sort of tell you, OK, well, this is how you should set it up, right? So if take something like vesting, right? There's a really good reason why you know, founders need to vest stock because, you know, if one founder's there for, you know, 10 years and the other founder's there for two years, then you, know, you, you need to kind of take that into account, right? So so we do, we'd actually set up everything in, in quite, a, you know, a good way uh, that, that meant that we didn't really need to have those conversations. It was already sort of pretty much taken care of just by virtue of setting things up correctly at the beginning. So I think, uh, you know, definitely... Um, saw the the fruits of that through those those kind of processes so yeah it was nice for those kind of aspects of it not to be something that we needed to really figure out right okay and um i'm assuming i must have felt like a bit of a blow but a good a good decision for the business to know that that is kind of you know out of the way and you've got the passion there and then i guess a second blow comes when you have that conversation with matt did that feel more difficult well, that, that was a really, really different uh, scenario, right? Um, you know, it, with Matt and myself, and this kind of happened quite a bit later on in the journey. And um, I think what we realised was that, and again, it kind of comes down to not really knowing what we were doing going into the thing, right? But we, we didn't really ever sort of define roles for each other in, in, in the business early on. Um, and as the business grew, um, you know, it became increasingly clear that we did need to all have more you know, defined roles, and, and as part of that, what became clear is that, you know, someone needed to be leading the business, right? Like we needed someone to take that CEO role. And I think that as we were sort of going through that process, we realized that like that one of the problems that we had was that Matt didn't want me to be his boss and I didn't want Matt to be my boss, right? That, that was just, we just did, we don't have that kind of a relationship, right? We're really good friends. We're still really close. And, and that, you know, that we, we would never be able to work for each other in that way we were very much more partners um and you know so w- when we came to that decision of okay well look we think that you know we need a, C- a ceo then you know it was either okay well one of us takes it 
or we find someone else, right? And we hadn't really started a business because we wanted to work for someone else, right? We kind of wanted to to lead the thing ourselves. So, you know, I think it was sort of that realisation of, okay, well, if one of us is going to take it, then almost a, a sort of a corollary of that is that one of us needs to kind of take a step back. And so it was more the question of, okay, well, who's going to do it? And, uh, you know, we, we both wanted to do it, right? It, we, and and I remember it was a, there was no good way of making the decision. So we we just ended up sort of getting in a room together and being like, right, well, we're basically not going to leave this room until we've kind of decided who's going to do the, the, do the thing. And I think that what Matt came to the conclusion of was that I was slightly more passionate about this business than he was, right? He was like, look, I'd love to do this, but I know how much you love this business and I want to give you the chance to, to, to run with this. And so, you know, maybe it was that, maybe it was, I was more stubborn. I don't really know, but the, uh, you know, we ended up uh, deciding that I was going to uh, take, take the role and uh, he was going to, you know, continue to support from, from more, more of the sidelines and, yeah, so Matt's still on the board, still very much actively involved in in the business, uh, but just not not in an operational capacity. And so it was a very, it wasn't like he it was didn't really feel like he was leaving, right? It was more like just a continuation of of the journey. And and uh, you know, I feel very grateful that he gave me the opportunity to to take the lead on this one. Fair enough. So you've got, um, I guess, this uh, experience of of building the business and taking more and more responsibility as as time goes on right um i'm guessing having to build up a leadership team around you to replace like massive holes especially emotional support how did you go about that did you did you think about you know these are the roles i need to fill from a skills point of view with that with a consideration of the fact that you know losing your co-founders means you're going to have to rely on some people to have uh those kind of emotional support roles as well because you know it's lonely at the top and going from three to one is quite different yeah um i mean uh, you know we, we already had like some some great people in the business right so you know it wasn't like uh yeah i mean i i do i always feel like the there's an overemphasis on on the role of the founder right in, in all of these stories and people tend to think okay well you know founders are the ones that build the business um and that, that's true in the early days right but I think that you know, there's a massive underappreciation of of what the role of the early employees is, right? And so, you know, it wasn't like I was there all of a sudden just on my own, right? We, we did have a team and we had some fantastic people uh, that have helped us along the way. The journey that I, I feel like was a more meaningful one was more that around, you know, how the role of the leadership team of the business has evolved as the business scales, right? And I think, you know, early on, one of the mistakes that I think we made was that we really undervalued experience, right? So we, we thought, okay, well, we'll figure out everything from first principles, basically. Uh, and this sort of almost sense of arrogance that we'll, we'll figure out better than, you know, the whole of, you know, the world that's come before us. Um, and and so, you know, that 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 was our initial path. Uh, I can't say it was the most successful uh, of approaches. And then, you know, over time, you know, we learned from that and, you know, have hired in some fantastic people uh, that are much more experienced in in what they do. Uh, And, you know, initially that started out as more, I guess, narrow experience in the the functional areas that we felt like we needed to build up, right? So things like sales or marketing. 
where you know we we didn't really know anything about those areas where we never built a sales team or a marketing team or anything like that and so you know that we initially focused more on those kind of functional skills and and i think that one of the things that i've come to appreciate as we go through that we've been through the sort of next stage of, of scaling and and the one that we're, we're on at the moment where you go from more of a startup to more of a scale up um, is the importance of, of the non-functional elements of the experience right you know what that that kind of experience of scaling a business and, and rapidly growing it uh, and and there's a lot there that you know we've been really lucky to hire some amazingly you know talented and experienced executives that that have gone through those kind of journeys and, and that's you know massively uh helped us to to up our ambition you know up our uh level of of execution and you know i continue to learn a huge amount from from those people that we've hired uh, every day i guess one of the normal challenges that a lot of ceos face with their team is this understanding of um you know ego vulnerability and ability to ask for help in lots of different ways, right? And that's quite a challenging journey that everyone goes on. And obviously, in 2016, you had, uh, you know, a life changing accident, which I suppose would have changed your, um, your personal growth path to approaching all of those different aspects of your psyche. So um, if you wouldn't mind sharing with our listeners, um, you know, what happened and how you approach that and your support network around you approach that or rather how you approached getting us the right support network yeah well i mean so yeah back in 2016 uh yeah i had a cycling accident like you said um it's a pretty serious one uh so you know i broke my spine in well one one place but in quite a massive way uh which left me paralyzed from just below the chest down um and you know that that meant that i was you know, out of the business uh, entirely for for a period of time. Um, so, I think I was in hospital for about three months or so, four months maybe. Um, uh, and then even you know, after coming out of hospital, you know, I was obviously living now living life in a wheelchair. So, a very different uh, way of uh, you know seeing the world, um, and you know, almost having to relearn everything that you take for granted uh, as an adult. Right, it's almost like being a child again right you know even like basic stuff like how do you open a door uh is like i remember like thinking one, one day at hospital i was like how am i ever going to get through doors again right it was like opening a door for, in a wheelchair is a skill <laughs> uh, that you have to learn um and so 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 there was a, a a long period of time where uh i was out of the business and then coming back to the business gradually did you just change all the feng shui and get all the japanese sliding doors in the office instead <laughs> well yeah no exactly um and and then uh you know to the point about having you know a really great relationship with with matt i, I mean matt was just really starting out nested but he came back into the business and he you know alongside starting his own company from scratch he was also you know came back in to, to help uh, operate the, the go cardless um, and you know he was there and and supported um, through through that period, um, and and then also obviously all the the rest of the the team and the management team needed to step up as well and uh, take take on a lot more responsibility. But but in 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 some ways it was it was kind of strange because you know, from a professional perspective it actually ended up being a, a big silver lining to the whole experience for me because I was forced to basically give up my job right uh, I was out of the business for three months it, uh, for the next year I was kind of gradually coming back from working one day a week to 
you know, working full time. Um, and so that, that forced me to really rethink, you know, what my role was in the business. What was I spending my time doing? You know, how, how did we operate? Um, and so it was almost an opportunity to, to kind of redefine my role from, from scratch, which was a, a really interesting uh, challenge and the opportunity as well. So how do you think you got challenged as a leader? Like, so what do you think were your, you know, your main, main insights and how you actually developed your style um, and behaviours after that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that you definitely, uh, I definitely realised was that I didn't think I was micromanaging things, but I was micromanaging a lot of things, right? I was just getting very involved in a lot of uh, aspects of the of the business where, you know, actually we realised that giving it to other people, they did a much better job than me, right? Uh, and so yeah, that, that was definitely a humbling experience of realising, okay, well, actually, you know, wh- where are you at? Where am I really adding value, right? Um, how can I be most helpful to the growth of the business and and also where are the areas where i'm probably impeding the business right and so that was quite an interesting kind of uh, learning was 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 seeing that i think the the you know the other aspect of it was really how do i engage with the the business overall and you know how do i engage with the rest of the management team and and, and you know almost starting from scratch there uh, and you know, that was a, it actually in, in many ways came at a very good time in our journey as a business because you know, we were kind of getting from what I think at the time when I had my accident, we were sort of maybe 70 people. And then over the course of the next year, year and a half, we grew from 70 people to maybe 150, 200 people. So, so we grew the business quite a lot in terms of team. And, and that, that, you know, I think that in, in hindsight, if I'd have continued running the business as I had been before my accident, then probably things wouldn't have worked very well at all. So, you know, it was a, probably came at a good time in that sense. How did you find your investors and people around the business responded to you during this period and after? I mean, was there this developing sense of how to actually behave around you? And did you have a, did you yourself have a developing sense of not wanting people to feel sorry for you, not wanting people to react any differently to you, but also having to understand that they might not be able to help it? Was that a bit of a journey between on, on all those different relationships? Yeah, I mean, I was really, really lucky uh, to have an incredibly supportive set of investors, an incredibly supportive team. Uh, and, and they gave me a huge amount of comfort and freedom, right? Because they, they basically said, uh, look, don't worry about the business. We're going to look after it is here when you come back and, you know, we can't wait to have you back. And and that, I mean, it, it was really important. So they lied to your face. <laughs> yeah, I know, they lied to my face. But that's what I needed to hear at the time, right? And so it was like, you know, there were definitely moments where I was questioning, like, okay, well, should I even go back at all? Uh, but, you know, feeling like I was wanted back in the business was, was really, gave me something to work towards. Um, so that, that was great. Um, and I think that, it's quite difficult to answer your question about, you know, how people were responding to me because that's a more personal question, right? It, not not as in personal in the sense of it wasn't just professionally. It was like my whole identity. You're revisiting it. You're redefining it, right? You're going from being just a normal, able-bodied person to being a disabled person in a wheelchair. You know, there's, there's a lot of kind of, I guess, baggage that comes with that. Uh, there's a lot of different perspectives that you have on, on the world, uh, and a lot of different perspectives the world how the world has on you, and so that, you know you're navigating quite a lot there. And I think in in some ways, actually, 
the business and, and, and working at Go Cardless was almost like a respite to that, right? It was an area where I felt like I could be myself, right? And I think that was actually quite fundamental in helping me to realise that, you know, even though my situation had changed quite substantially, my identity was the same, right? Um, and so, you know, it, it was almost like the opposite. Uh, it was the, that was one of the things that helped me get through the whole experience. And do you feel like before your before your experience like this, do you feel like you were quite a, a vulnerable and open person, you know, willing to talk about these things? Um, or did that develop a lot from that moment? Did it give you sort of a different edge and a different insight into that kind of human connection? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I have my wife to thank for that in the sense that, you know, definitely I've been, I, I've always been much more of a, a closed person, right, from a, an emotional perspective. And... You know, I think that she really encouraged me to to connect more with the the emotional side of this, uh, and that's helped me to you know, be a bit more open, not just about my disability, but more just generally. Um, and I think that's a, an important aspect of what I feel my leadership style is. Right, uh, I think that that sort of having a sense of vulnerability uh, and authenticity is really important. Right, um, at least to me, um, and you talked a bit about, you know, ego, you know, I think that you, 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 you kind of have to let go of that, right. Um, to, to be able to be vulnerable, but I think that's also a really valuable, uh, part of the way at least I operate. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's, uh, definitely been something that I've had to adapt, um, but hopefully for the better. Okay. In 2019, so last year, you raised a, uh, a fresh $75 million round of investment as we, as we mentioned. Uh, do you remember what the pitch for the business was at that point? What were you striving towards? What's the vision The you know, you're always having to develop this big vision to get a grasp of all that extra money that you're, you're spending on building. So what do you see the vision for Go Cardless at this point? Where's it all going? Yeah, I mean, the, the vision has actually not changed a huge amount, right? It was, you, you know, for us, it's about be building the best way to collect recurring payments. And, you know, we, we were quite fortunate in that we, we work in a, a huge market, right? So, you know, that, that vision doesn't have to change much for it to still be really exciting at various levels of scale. And, and it's much more about what stage of our journey are we in. Um, and I think that one of the things that was really, you know, exciting about the last fundraise and part of what enabled us to, to raise that level of investment was that, we've gone from being much more of a UK-centric business to much more of a global one, right? We built out the the backbone of a global network that so went from being able to collect payments in basically just the UK to being able to collect payments across 30 different countries that covers about 70% of, of recurring payments globally. Um, and, you know, that, that, that provides a platform for, you know, the next stage of growth for the business. And, and so, you know, it was really more about where we were in the journey and, and importantly being uh, able to, to expand globally that, that was a big part of that, that fundraise. What do you think the most exciting technological innovations are that interest you currently in the world? And I guess if you weren't doing uh, Go Cardless, where you think you'd like to apply some of that intelligence and experience? No, that's a good question. Uh, it's one I need to think more deeply about. I, I find that I'm quite a a sort of a single track minded person. So, you know, I, I, when I'm focused on, you know, go cardless, that's kind of all I think about. Um, and so I, I think that there's a lot of areas that are really exciting and interesting, right? You know, everything from, you know, AI and machine learning and, you know, everything that's being done with data, 
uh, through to, you know, the way in which, you know, we're merging, you know, the, the human body with, with technology, right? And, you know, obviously for me in particular, it's probably quite uh, an, a pertinent area, right? Because, you know, that might be the, the, the way in which one day I can walk again, right? So it's like, so there's, there's a lot of different areas that you can put your mind to, uh, but, you know, I find that, you know, you, you can only really do one thing well at a time. So, you know, for now, I'm focused on payments, but, you know, who, who knows what happens in the future. Okay, so I guess a better question might well be, what do you see happening in the payments industry that looks particularly exciting or different? You know, is it is it evolving and changing in a way that is uh, exciting to you? Or is it is a sort of little change from an innovation point of view since open banking, etc.? Well, I mean, I think open banking is, is a really interesting sort of set of initiatives around the world, right? And uh, I think that that's what an area that we're definitely very, very excited about. Uh, because their fundamentally is going to change the the ability to access account information and and uh, people's stores of wealth, right? And that's going to I think enable a whole wave of of innovation. Uh, but but it's still kind of in its infancy. Uh, it'll probably be the next five to ten years, which will be where that evolution happens. And and you know we definitely want to be part of that. Um, I think the, you know I think the other area that I think a lot about is that you know. Uh, Payments is sort of thought of as like a, a single market, right? But the reality is that it's a, a set of very different markets, right? Depending on what you're trying to collect payments for. Um, and, you know, I think that that's definitely been one of our kind of key hypotheses and, and beliefs from very early on was that, you know, that these different use cases have very different needs. And, and so that, that's why we focus on, you know, recurring payments as we do. Um, and I think that one of the areas that seems to be getting a lot more attention more recently that I'm interested in is around, you know, B2B payments, right? And, and this is an area where as consumers, we don't think about a lot, but, you know, it, it, there's a lot of areas of B2B payments where it's, it's mind-bogglingly arcane, right? You know, in, in, in the US, it's still 70% of B2B payments are paid using paper checks, Right. So, I mean, it's sort of, it's just crazy. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, I received a check the other day in the post. I don't even know what to do with it. Uh, and so th- th- I think there's going to be a wider set of use cases that move to a digital form of payment. And that is also going to create some massive opportunities. So I think it's going to be the confluence of all these factors which are going to create great opportunities for us as a business, uh, but also for, for other payment businesses as well, I think. Okay, so just, uh, I guess starting to wrap up now i mean we've talked about it but i don't want to uh, assume too much what what would you say has been the biggest business challenge of your life today and uh what did you do to try and find the strength to overcome it yeah i'm not sure uh, i mean you know it'd be easy to say you know going through uh, a life-altering injury would be one of the biggest business challenges but in some ways it wasn't just because i had a huge amount of support from you know my investors my colleagues my co-founders my my wife my family you know uh, my friends so you know that that was actually not as hard as as you probably would think uh and uh, actually i think the harder part is just the the general journey and like i think that for me i always say that i'm the least experienced person in the business right you know i'm a i've never worked in or let alone ran an organization of the the scale that we're at today um, and that's been true of almost every uh, point in the company's life. So, so I think it's the more the, the kind of the, the general sort of learning and keeping 
up with the business and what the business needs. That 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 to me is the the biggest challenge, but also the biggest opportunity and you know, an opportunity I feel really grateful and lucky to to have. And what's been the best moment of your career so far? Would you say? I mean, other than this interview, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't know. I I can't. For me, like I don't really think of it as moments, right? I think of it more as the journey. So it's not like I point to an individual event or an individual moment that makes you think, okay, yeah, this is what I've been doing it all for, right? It's more like the the overall experience. And I think that yeah, there's lots of moments uh, that I enjoy and, you know, could be anything from, you know, seeing the team grow and you know, uh, seeing people have great careers and you know, develop as individuals, uh, which is great, uh, through to... You know, when you get stopped at a conference by a customer that you know really loves the the service and you've you've been able to help their business in a massive way, right? Like I think it's it's not individual moments for me. It's more the the overall experience, and yeah, I, I'm really enjoying the journey and, and and love being part of it. Okay, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received from some wise sage that dropped a bomb on you? I think that uh, one of the best pieces of advice about startups that I received was. Uh, from Sam Altman, when he he, he described st- a startup as like riding a wave, uh, and you know as long as you don't bail, uh, or you know in the startup equivalent terms, as long as you don't die, eventually you'll be successful, right? And I think that that's something that you know I've really uh, th- that stuck with with me. It was that, that that kind of resilience of just getting through the whatever stage you're in, no matter how difficult it seems, um, and having that faith that that's survived for long enough and you will be successful. Uh, and, and I think that, that that's definitely uh, something that, that stuck with me. And finally, your best piece of advice that you've got for other people that might be looking to go on a highly ambitious journey like yourself. Uh, I think, well, it's not, I can't claim it as my own, uh, but I think it, uh, the, the, the other piece of advice that I really like is, um, I can't remember who said this. I think it might have been Bill Gates, but it's like, you know, you everyone massively overestimates what they can do in a year but underestimates what they can do in 10 years and I think that's definitely true in in my experience right when I think about you know we're, we're actually you know going to be coming up to our the 10-year anniversary of starting the business right next year and um, when I think about it in the perspective of what do we get done in every year I always find myself wanting right I feel like we we haven't done everything that we wanted uh, but when I look back on what we've where we've got to versus where we started yeah, it's been an amazing journey and, and one I'm incredibly proud of. And so I think that, you know, linked to that, you know, probably don't underestimate how long the journey will take, but don't underestimate what you can achieve either. So yeah, that would be my advice. And, you know, stay, stay the course and ride the wave. Absolutely. Dude, thank you so much for your time. It's been brilliant. No, great, great to, to chat, Dan. Thank you. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta, 
Producer, Rich Martell. Editor, Harry Morton of Lower Street Media. And marketing by Hannah Russell of Mags Creative. And stunning visual design by our talented designer, Christina Naru of SmartUpVisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming live events on our website, secretleaders.com. If you've not yet, please hit subscribe, leave us a review, tell a friend, take a screenshot of this episode and add it to an Insta story. I mean, you know what to do. And tag us at Secret Leaders or at Dan Murray Serta, and we'll add you to our story in appreciation back. Rich and I put together Secret Leaders for free because we love our day jobs as entrepreneurs, but every time someone takes the time to share it, it means a lot to us. So don't forget, it's the little things like that that keep us coming back every week and every year into the studio. See you next week.